Okay, so we're here amongst the books at McLeod's. McLeod's Books, named for the original owner, Don McLeod, who was someone who set it up in 1964. He was, well, I can only describe him as a bit of a pirate. He Unlike had, most book, uh, used books, <laughs> yeah, <right>? of course. <laughs> He'd come out of the antiques trade. His mother had run an antique store. He ended up in books, and uh, there are lots of stories about his various uh, adventures or misadventures, uh, including uh, one knockdown drag out fight in the Sally Ann over some books. But at a certain point, he decided to move up to the Sunshine Coast and uh, go into real estate. So, where the money is? Well, he was quite successful in uh, unexpected ways. At one point he bought an original residence, uh, old falling down cabin, and uh, was walking through it and noticed a floorboard was squeaking. So he lifted it and he found a large sum of uh, money in 1920s uh, pristine bills hidden under the floorboards. So what he did was he would come to town and uh, go from coin dealer to coin dealer selling these bills at premium prices over uh, many many years yeah he was he was no slouch uh, don was uh, you know you know he was a very good uh, raconteur so he had the shop from uh, 64 to about 1970 and he sold it to an American who had uh, been avoiding the draft, Van Andrus, and Van ran it for several years, but was a writer at the time, and he wanted to go off and spend time writing a novel. I happened to have moved to uh, Vancouver a, a short time before, and I was working as a general kitchen help heavy in a big kitchen out at UBC, but I would on my day off go around to all the bookshops and uh, uh, when he said he was going to put the shop up for sale I and one other person were interested and uh, uh, I was the one who ended up with it. The other person ended up uh, running a, uh, he was more interested in uh, sound and uh, hi-fi equipment and he ended up running a kind of high level thing. Then went off, joined an, an intentional community up near Lillooet, uh, where he still is, and uh, uh, became an environmental writer. Uh, and uh, he's written a number of uh, uh, books or uh, papers, pamphlets. Okay, that's, that's enough about them. You are Don Stewart. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Right. Sorry about uh, <laughs> Are you always selfless backwards. like this, talking about others rather than yourself? Well, it sort of gives some background on the shop. For sure. Okay. Um, the shop that we're currently in, I think you may have moved it from the original location. That's right. It's been here since 82. This is located sort of east part of downtown, right next to Gastown. And when I came in here along East Hastings, I saw some of the worst poverty I've ever seen in Canada. Very, very close to the store. Well, it's a very complicated question down there. They actually pour so much money into that area every year that uh, 
theoretically the problems could all be solved if there was an unobstructed uh, way of solving them. What does that mean? Well, we have a kind of pile-up of uh, factors. We have a, a, a huge number of dual diagnosis people. Yes. What happened was they deinstitutionalized many years ago without giving people the kind of support they needed, and people drifted into a drug dependency scene. Also, we have one of the uh, worst of uh, the uh, meth, but people started on uh, oxy and um, got hooked. So there's been a continuous surge of new people. Also, Vancouver is um, the end of the line. Now, when I started out downtown here, there were exactly four homeless people. And they were people who they kept trying to get into homes and they refused. They wanted to sleep on the street. And I remember when one of them was uh, uh, an early victim of uh, dumpsters. Uh, they introduced the idea of dumpsters and this guy had crawled into a dumpster and got compacted when it uh, got emptied. Right. And everyone was stricken by this. You know, everyone felt terrible about it. So we went from that. And I used to spend a lot of time in Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, uh, and I would see the immense numbers of uh, people on the streets there because every West Coast uh, city would end up having people drift to the coast because of the weather situation and the idea that things would be better for them. And uh, we always here in Vancouver thought we were doing so much better. And now, of course, it's the opposite. How's that affected your book selling, if at all? I've been told by many people that they don't like to come downtown anymore. There is that uh, problem. COVID has, of course, made things a lot worse because there are far fewer office workers downtown. The good thing is that we avoided an, a large outbreak of COVID amongst the uh, population of East Hastings. The city and the province were mm. very diligent about trying to give people vaccines as soon as they possibly could. There was quite an interesting program, which uh, the story of which has yet to be told about how they went about doing that. Uh, so we've avoided the worst of it. But now we're part here of a, a gritty uh, city scene. What you were witnessing used to all be about uh, four blocks to five blocks from here. Mm -hmm. But it, since COVID began, it has spread throughout the entire downtown area mm -hmm. and uh, onto Broadway and uh, West 4th Avenue and uh, throughout the entire inner city. Um, these are just problems are growing. Homeless people who are sleeping on the streets and asking for money, that kind of thing. Well, there are a lot of brain damaged people yeah. because of the uh, drug taking and they don't cope as well. There's a lot of brain damaged booksellers too though. Well, I think uh, in order to be a bookseller you have to be a bit of a, an oddity in this, especially in this culture. Uh, there was a time when technicians of the sacred were uh, the people who 
wrote books, the people who published books, and by extension, the people who uh, served the public in public libraries and uh, booksellers. And now, of course, the technicians of the sacred are those people who are writing uh, programs. Yes. Uh, and uh, code. Yeah. yeah, it's all about code now. Yeah. So great irony. Um, when I started out in book selling, uh, books were viewed as almost sacred objects, and people would bring me stuff and say, "Is it okay to throw this out?" You know, I don't want to throw out a good book. And now, for the last uh, 10, 12, 15 years, books are turning up in garbage and paper recycling all the time. The libraries are throwing them into dumpsters. Yeah, they're being dumpstered. Uh, they're, uh, there's such a devaluation of the printed word from how the culture once saw it. Yeah. By extension, uh, when I started out as a bookseller, it wasn't a, uh, uh, a term that people uh, frowned at if you uh, said what you did at the party. <laughs> now, of course, they look at you like you're some kind of dinosaur. Or alien. Yeah. Yeah. My father used to live in Vancouver for the last 35 years of his life, and uh, he loved bookstores. He dragged me into a lot of them, and I'm sure that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. But Vancouver, and I visited him in the early 70s, in the summers, and Vancouver, that's right around when you set up. It had a kind of a wonderful hippie vibe. Yeah, socialist. it was laid back. And the Georgia Strait actually was subversive. Exactly. Uh, what was it like back then as compared to today? People drifted around, there wasn't this same intensity of uh, lack of time. People had more browsing time in their lives. They had more time to stop and talk. We saw a lot of this come back during COVID, this idea that time could stretch out and people could take the time to talk to one another more. Um, and in terms of the traffic, one of the first things I noticed during COVID was there was so little traffic that it reminded me of something and I went, wait a minute, this is what Vancouver in the 1970s was like. Not that much traffic, no rushing around, and I, it brought back a lot of happy memories, frankly. It sort of feels like uh, you could be open to people on what they had to say back then, whereas now we're we have our heads down, we're uh, looking at our phones, or we're uh, uh, rushing from one appointment to another. You could have extended conversations. I mean, I always have learned a lot from my customers. Um, I think uh, booksellers have the wonderful advantage of uh, exposure to the most interesting people they're, they're ever going to run into. And uh, vice versa. Booksellers are fascinating. Well, booksellers who are successful, booksellers are almost always introverts at the start, but they're forced to become <laughs> extroverts. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, they, they usually get into bookselling because uh, of their interest in books, uh, but of course it's uh, always going to be 50-50, 50% -50, uh, people and 50% books. 
And I found, particularly in those days, you could meet incredibly interesting people and spend time with them. For example, I remember spending a, an afternoon in my shop talking to Earl Burney about his experiences uh, traveling around as an undercover uh, Trotskyist organizer <laughs> and going to uh, different places in Europe and uh, the United States. He wrote a good book about this later in the 50s called Down the Long Table, mm. which is his autobiographical account. But uh, can talk to people like him. Uh, Dorothy Livesay used to be around a lot and at one point asked me for a job, but uh, I didn't have anything available at that moment. There were all these links to people from earlier generations, and uh, I was very interested in uh, uh, labor history uh, and radical history, and encountered people who had been in the 1919 general strikes uh, here and in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. um, one of my fellow booksellers, Johnny Ahrens, uh, was a longtime member of the Socialist Party, and uh, W.A. Pritchard, uh, who was one of the Winnipeg strike leaders, would come and visit him every year, so one, you could spend time talking to him at uh, Ahrens's. Also, there were older booksellers around, um, and uh, perhaps the most interesting local bookseller is Stephen McIntyre. And McIntyre had started in the 30s as a uh, scout. He used to get on the interurban with a wheelbarrow, go to mm -hmm. New Westminster where they were tearing down all the old big houses and they were just throwing the books into piles. And he would load up and then he would trek all the way back from New Westminster pushing his wheelbarrow and go from bookshop to bookshop uh, selling what he had found. You're doing quite well at it too. Well, he he did well, but it was awfully hard work. Yeah, um, physical. Yeah. Uh, during the war, book selling kind of shut down pretty much and uh, McIntyre went off to work in the shipyards and he told me about uh, a party at the end of the war that went on for 10 days. <laughs> and he was the last survivor of the party. It was going continuously for 10 days. I've he heard you mention that he could drink all day long and uh, without much effect on him. Every day he would drink a 26 or a case of beer and smoke two decks of cigarettes. He would just continuously smoke. How old did he live to? He lived into his 80s. Okay. And what did you learn from him? Well, I learned, I learned a lot of by talking to him about um, the earlier history of the trade here um, and the kinds of books uh, and some of the collectors who had been active. Mm -hmm. There were once two great collectors of BC books who were in competition. Uh, one was Howey, who was a judge, and the other was Roby Reed, who was a, a lawyer. And he said you had to maneuver very carefully because if you couldn't sell it to one of them and then the other learned 
that it had been rejected, yeah. he would probably reject it. It's you not good to, enough for him. Pick, yeah. But you had to also divide everything so that each of them had an equal opportunity. <laughs> right. So, um, anyway, McIntyre was a, a lovely guy. And so you loved him, did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was. Yeah. Uh, he was a. He was a great guy. He could be. Oddly enough, I mean, he had. Uh, tried to uh, discourage me from taking over McLeod's books because yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know quite why, but he was just scared of the competition. I think that might be too cynical, <laughs> but it certainly wasn't because of my welfare. <laughs> he was more interested in his. <laughs> yeah. There's another uh, bookseller that you became very friendly with, and that's Bill Hoffer, who I hear all sorts of stories about. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about him. Well, he was brilliant. Why was he brilliant? He had a good idea about going into different areas, particularly Canadian literature, that had been more or less ignored for quite some time. He actually uh, read it too, didn't he? Yeah, he read it, but uh, the downside of Bill's readings was that he was very much into snap judgments. Which um, you can find in his catalogs, hilariously. Yes, they, they, they were often hilarious, but sometimes they were quite hurtful. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they were remarkably off base, and sometimes they were remarkably on. And it was very much like that in his shop, too, where he, if he decided he liked how some customer approached him, he would give them the earth. But if mm -hmm. he had his back up for whatever reason, he would uh, make life very hard for them and often drive them out of the store. Did he drive more people out than he welcomed? The, ru the rumor is that he hated everyone. Well, what happened was, as time went on, he had diabetes and he was abusing it because he liked to drink and he ate badly. I traveled with him quite a bit. We used to do trips down the coast or over to the prairies as far as Winnipeg. To buy some, books? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes uh, we'd meet up in Ottawa or Toronto or somewhere and scout together. Anyway, Bill's habits really made his diabetes and his insulin shock worse and worse and worse. And in the end, it sort of began to color everything that he did uh, in his approach to people. Yeah, But he also would get ideas in his head, like one of his last uh, eccentric ideas was that he wanted to be the first Jew in modern history to emigrate back to the Soviet Union. <laughs> and um, That's where he died, isn't it? Yeah, he actually died in Victoria, but he was suffering for several years, and he thought that his father could save him, but... Why, was his father a doctor? Or? Yeah, his father is, was actually a famous doctor, Abram Hoffer. He's the guy who uh, gave LSD to Aldous Huxley, for example, and he was running all kinds of amazing experiments in uh, the 1960s and early 70s in Saskatchewan um, on treatment of mentally ill people, and then uh, he became uh, involved with Linus Pauling, and they were doing a lot about uh, treatment of mental illness uh, using megavitamins. That's coming back, too. They're yeah, only yeah. Well, finally they're now seeing that LSD and 
those kinds of drugs are, but, but because they were criminalized, all the research just kind of halted, or a lot of it did. He ended up out in Victoria, uh, where he treated people for many years, and uh, Bill hadn't wanted to face the reality that uh, that we all eventually have to face, uh, that are all the uh, bad living that we might have done in our youth, uh, <laughs> it catches up with us somehow or other, and it, it eventually caught up with him. But as I say, he was uh, brilliant as a bookseller. Um, and uh, take great risks. What is it that made him brilliant? He would intuitively grasp situations and uh, uh, go with them. He, he would help construct uh, very elaborate and involved uh, deals that uh, might eventually pay off. Sometimes they didn't. How did you do that? His initial big mentor sponsor uh, was Peter Howard of Serendipity Books in, in uh, Berkeley. Uh, when Bill was getting ready to move to the Soviet Union, he placed much of his inventory uh, and much other material uh, with Peter, uh, because Peter was uh, an expert in constructing all these arrangements with all kinds of different institutions and individuals. So Bill learned quite a lot from from. Peter and Peter supported him in some of these uh, situations that came up. So uh, that's where Bill's inventory ultimately ended up, which was at that point, um, other than Stephen Temple, probably the largest stock of Canadian uh, literature um, that anyone had. And uh, it got mined for a long time, and then the remainder was sort of lost in the vastness of the, uh, when Peter got ill and died. But his papers went to Indiana, apparently. I'm not sure where everything ended up. Bill and I were very close through the 70s into the early 80s, but at a certain point we were going our different ways. As other booksellers used to say, I'd love to move to Vancouver, but then I'd have to contend with Bill Hoffer, and it would just make my life a misery. Why did it make your life a misery? Well, if I failed to support him in some of his more extreme positions uh, towards different people... Uh, okay. You had to take sides. Yeah. Bill was very much someone who wanted you to support his positions on different things, and uh, there was a lot that was unsupportable. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, we're surrounded by piles of books, so how's your relationship, and that's what you're known for, is just a bookstore that's jammed full of books. How's your relationship with the fire department? Uneasy. Um, we try to... Uh, keep the uh, code in effect wherever possible, um, but they, I think... They'd like to burn the place down. Well, not burn it down. Well, they, they, burn they, it down uh, and then put it out. They would <laughs> like to see me leave their jurisdiction. Okay. Sort of an ongoing uh, problem that uh, we're working on uh, fixing wherever possible. What does that mean? It means uh, 
I'm moving a lot of stuff uh, out of here. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going into warehouse spaces. Okay. Uh, You've got a ton of stuff in the basement. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff here and there. I've ended up with uh, a lot of uh, collections of books over the years. As I'm now on the downside of my career, no bookseller lasts forever, no matter how mm -hmm. much we would like to believe that we are going to. I'm trying to uh, place things elsewhere. Looking for buyers, looking for other people, other bookstores to... Well, there, COVID has been kind of uh, a major uh, blow to everyone's normal idea of activity. Uh, I would say the last three weeks, uh, which would take us back to the beginning of uh, July, have uh, been as close as we've seen to uh, pre-COVID uh, world in terms of numbers of customers and numbers of purchases and um, volume of sales. So I would like to be hopeful that uh, the feeling of jam up will start to unjam in a major way. Are you having trouble hiring people? There are lots of people that one could hire, but in this kind of environment, in order to successfully cope, you have to be someone with both a great interest in books and you have to be possessed of a very good memory and the uh, ability to size up uh, situations and uh, problem solve them. What does uh, that mean? Uh, uh, well, a lot of people just uh, are not the kind of self-starters who function well in, a, in this kind of atmosphere. Don't know what that means. This isn't for everybody. The right kind of person for this kind of environment is uh, someone who has very few illusions about what working in a bookstore is. For many people, they see, oh, this would be such a nice atmosphere to, to yeah. work in. Right. And uh, as one of them once said after she tried it out for uh, several days, she said she'd never seen anyone work as hard as I did and she, had, uh, she was someone who had worked in her father's business uh, in summers and that kind of thing. Um, in other words, there's an endless uh, tide of details coming at you, always. In other words, what? People asking for different types of books and you have to know how to put the right book in the right people's hands, that kind of thing? That's, that's some of it. Uh, you also have to know where to uh, uh, take a book that I've just priced and put it into the right spot right. where that person can find it. Well, that's the big thing. You have so many books here that if they were all accessible, you'd be a multi-millionaire. The problem is there's a huge pile of books down there and something I'm sure there there's a ton of books downstairs that I would love to buy but I just don't I can't find them yeah that is uh, one of the big problems pre-covid I had a much larger staff uh, and I had uh, there were more people doing organization we're gradually improving in that, but I can only take on people if I can afford to pay them. Yes. And uh, 
So a post-COVID uh, uh, world, which I hope takes us back to pre-COVID sales volumes, yeah, is desired. But we'll see. Do you think the, the bookstore is going to continue on once you move out, retire? Will you retire? When my wife and I first got together, I made it clear to her that I was not someone who would likely retire. Why would you retire? Well, I have to say after the last year of COVID, the thought of retirement has been a bit more tempting. Are you tired? I think it's uh, hard to keep one's uh, full energy and attention going. I mean, my most productive hours are in the morning before I open. Doing what? That's when a lot of the organization happens, a lot of pricing, a lot of dealing with different situations. Because once the doors open, it's a kind of yeah. reactive uh, yeah. situation. That it's like you have to be constantly with customers yeah. And, yeah. and their questions. And, and they, ab they absorb all your time and attention. Well, a fair amount of it. Um, I'm always working with at least one person, and uh, so they're taking their share of all that. Okay. Um, it's just, uh, if we could, uh, moving along, just drill down on labor history. What, if someone's interested in labor history, is it Canadian that you specialize in, or just generally? Oh, I once <laughs> had this as a specialty. Um, I'm still interested in it though. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but, but, but no, there, there aren't enough people out there. I mean, there's, there's one specialized store, well actually two specialized stores, one in uh, San Francisco and... Uh, Valerian? And, yeah, Valerian, and uh, one in Oakland. Uh, and they cover a lot of ground. What I was doing over the years was I, I put together some pretty major collections. So at one point I had the uh, uh, largest uh, collection of industrial workers of the world material outside of the Labadee collection. And they eventually came out and they spent $80,000 buying stuff from me that they needed. And they'd been collecting since 1910. If there were pamphlets put out by the IWW, I might have them in up to 10 different languages. You see, no one was paying attention to foreign language material for a yes. long time, Yeah. but I was. <clears throat> and uh, I've always uh, gone after uh, things in Finnish or Yiddish or assorted languages. So I put that collection together. I still have the uh, American Socialist Party collection, which is the largest such collection outside of Duke University. You've still got that in your possession? Yeah, I still have that in my possession, and it's full of archival material, too. What do you mean by archival material? I mean uh, original documents or internal material available only to a handful of people who might have been in the National Organizing Committee, that kind of stuff. Okay. Plus <coughs> endless uh, pamphlets. Uh, propaganda pamphlets uh, that were uh, put out. Over the years, uh, I built a very large uh, anarchist uh, collection, primarily 19th century anarchism, but uh, up to the World War II period. 
If we could just return then just for a bit to this labor history, socialism. Young person really interested in the topic. What's your advice? If they want to start gathering stuff. Well, I was gathering stuff at a point where it was surfacing. It no longer is. Is it because it's all in institutions or what? Well, what or happened disappeared was or the original, the original uh, people who were gathering this material. I was buying stuff from people who had been present at the Lawrence strike in 1912. I, at one point I bought Tim Buck's uh, secretary's oh, wow. collection. I, I was buying stuff at a time when there was kind of a turnaround of generations. But things have pretty much uh, either gone into institutions at this point or they're just not surfacing. I put together a fairly large Socialist Party of Canada collection, which is up at Simon Fraser University. Put together a big uh, Cooperative Commonwealth and a Federation collection, which is up at SFU. I would find things which, uh, for example, at one point I found the uh, um, undercover uh, CPR police reports on the Ottawa strike. No one even knew they existed, and uh, those are at SFU. But those things are not surfacing any longer. So most labor historians, of course, are working with uh, what's in institutions. The other to thing too research. is not being produced anymore because unions have been pretty well destroyed. Well. I was always more interested in the uh, the radical unions, mm -hmm. uh, most of whom no longer exist. Uh, and I was interested in the uh, uh, radical influences on uh, unions, uh, either from the socialist or communist parties or uh, uh, elsewhere, the anarchists. Because so few of the unions today take any kind of radical perspective. I think uh, contemporary labor history is fairly boring. Um, it's become institutionalized. Yeah, um, there's no resistance, is there? It's capitalism has basically won. Well, has prevailed, except every once in a while uh, there are rebellions and revolts. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is a That'd be a good collecting area, I guess. Well, it's a current uh, example. But the ways people communicate are different now, yes. and so there's very little printed material yeah. compared to what there once was. You would get leaflets being handed out to advertise an upcoming demonstration. I and others issued many such leaflets. And uh, <laughs> Oh, you got involved, did you? Well, I was always involved. The reason I got into the book business was because I wanted an independent way of making a living that uh, would provide me with a living while permitting me to do whatever else I wanted to do. Like what? <laughs> so it was like means what? to an end. Like what? Well, I was involved with various uh, publications uh, and uh, organizing efforts. We had a, an anti-postering bylaw here and uh, we formed a coalition of all the different groups who were affected by that. And then I was twice the test case. That sounds very 70s Vancouver. Yeah, 1970s, 80s Vancouver. But um, over the years, 
I withdrew because when I first got involved, I was one of the youngest, and one day I looked around and I was now one of the oldest activists. <clears throat> and um, I yeah. decided to, it was time to pull back. Interesting, isn't it? Being an old activist. Well, movements, um, movements come and go, um, but they leave a residue. It's like waves breaking on the shore. The sand is wet, and the next time the next wave hits, the sand might move a bit further. Um, you yeah. never know. I think the human impulse is uh, to uh, uh, fight against authoritarian regimes uh, have always been with us. How's your relationship with Eastern Canada? Or do you have one? Well, I talk to various dealers in uh, Halifax, uh, <clears throat> Montreal, Ottawa, occasionally Toronto. I don't travel much now. Do you I hate the East stuff. like Hoffer did? Okay. No, not at all. In fact, uh, over the years, I've learned quite a bit about Canadiana of all types, and uh, you know I put together a big collection of 1837-38 rebellion material. I've uh, had all kinds of great things to do with the War of 1812 passed through, or earlier bits of uh, Canadian history. So it does get here. <laughs> well, you'd be amazed at what ends up here. Yeah, a lot of people retire Canadian. here, don't they? British Columbia has always been a, uh, uh, a great exile point for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Once I got uh, called up to Pemberton, north of Whistler, went to a ranch house in the attic of the ranch house were all the books that the original rancher had brought over. He'd been a naval officer from England who liked what he saw here and ended up uh, <coughs> retiring from the Navy in the 19th century uh, to uh, start a ranch up there. There were a lot of uh, <coughs> sort of gentlemen's libraries or, or accumulated books that came over from Britain and elsewhere. Hmm. There was at uh, one point quite a uh, back and forth between Australia and New Zealand and uh, British Columbia in terms of people mm -hmm. moving back and forth. I know there's a lot of people from South Africa here too. Yeah, there have been some good South African things. A lot of people retired from uh, working in China or India and ended up on the west coast here. And a lot of Europeans uh, who felt they had to leave their homelands in the 1930s because of the Nazis <coughs> ended up here. I <laughs> once had a, uh, a man bring me the only thing they, that he and his family had been permitted to leave Germany with were some suitcases of antiquarian books. And he had been a uh, victim of the uh, Krishdel knot. They had ended up in Seattle and then managed to get to uh, Vancouver. So it was time for him to let go of all these books they'd brought. Mm -hmm. So they, they represented something uh, very special. Mm -hmm. All these uh, sad stories. Yeah, books from all over the world end up here. So what explains your longevity then? I just take each day at a time. Um, I like to look at my face in the mirror each morning and think that I'm uh, uh, doing the right thing. I 
still find enjoyment. I mean, every day is different. Mm -hmm. I used to say to uh, people that uh, working in this bookshop every day was like Christmas. You never knew what was going to turn out. Yeah, people showing up with their with treasures, right? That's right. It's not quite the same as it was anymore. And every generation has a different experience in the book trade. I think I'm a bit of a bridge between generations because I knew a number of booksellers who were active in the 1930s um, onward. Yeah, you talked about this bookseller in Calgary that had a basement that filled a whole city block. Chaffees, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. What was great was I met uh, his uh, nieces. They are twins who were in their 80s. And uh, they used to sit on the counter of his shop and do their homework. He unfortunately got struck down early by a stroke. Jaffe, the original Jaffe. And uh, at the time I started going into Jaffe's, the shop was run by two of his old assistants. Any vestiges of that shop anywhere? Or it's well, just uh, the labels that yeah. turn up from yeah. time to time in the back of uh, books. Uh, Jaffe's was uh, one of the ancient ones. You've touched on this. What do you enjoy most and least about what you're doing and have done? What I enjoy most is the uh, interesting people who come in and that occasional flutter of the heart when you run across something that uh, you've never seen before uh, that's really interesting. What I uh, enjoy least about what I have to do is some of the detail work, the keeping up with uh, the government demands. That's because you're an anarchist, right? Well, I used to say that everything that I had to do with the government could be done in one day of the year, <laughs> and now it's like uh, a month. <laughs> right. And here we thought we had capitalism. Um, okay, so just a final few questions here. Who are your customers now, and who were they, or how has it changed, or has it changed? Well, that's a very interesting question. Nowadays, most customers are uh, under the age of 45. We get a significant number of customers in their 20s because this is when they have the most time to read or the most desire to read serious philosophy, serious literature. They're searching, aren't they? And they're, they're reading all the great books of the past. That still sells. Yeah. Uh, Literature carries on. I mean, I've seen so many revivals of people over the years. Uh, I think I saw four different revivals of Leonard Cohen and uh, probably half a dozen revivals of uh, Bertolt Brecht, for example. Brecht is once again unknown. It'll come around again. What is missing is the kind of book collector who existed for much of my career. Those collectors had the space and the time to build collections. Now everyone is living in smaller spaces. Everything's much more expensive. Uh, everyone's interests are much more likely to be temporary rather than lifelong. And uh, you don't get the same <coughs> range of 
knowledge amongst those looking for books as you once did. I mean, nowadays people do fast uh, searches. You can research a topic superficially, but enough to function in it. You can research it within a few days on the internet. People are much more likely to just want to read one book on a subject than a series of books. So there has been a great success in the last 10 years in uh, pulling together history books that, uh, uh, or thematically uh, history of literature or photography or philosophy books that deal with a particular period of time and a group of people based on their memoirs or research on them. And those do incredibly well over time because there's sort of a synthesis of the 10 or 15 or 20 books on that subject that people used to ask for and read. So what people are after has changed. And I'm always worried about relevance. Well, depth of knowledge too. People used to have much more of an idea of place that is, they were interested in British Columbia-specific or Ontario-specific material. And that's faded out to a great degree. They might be very interested in uh, uh, a local history of some town that they spend a lot of time in, but they might not want to have uh, an interest in the people who were there before, the early travelers, explorers, the indigenous people who were in that area. All the interesting things that took place there. Yeah, um, so it's kind of hit and miss. I mean, that still happens, but it tends to have a much more narrow focus. <laughs> and people don't have the same kind of uh, author-specific collecting happening that uh, used to. They tend to be more high spotters. They are looking for books uh, that are specifically on these 100 best list. Yeah, it's funny, that's how I started off and I knew it. after a while I realized what a mistake it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just not affordable. This last question, what is the ideal scenario for you for the last 10 years of your life? I think a gradual uh, divestment or perhaps a rapid divestment so that I have time to deal with uh, all the uh, projects that I would like to uh, complete, cataloging projects, research projects. In what areas? I, well, I have a lot of material, as I was saying. Uh, for example, I have a very large collection on anarchism, primarily 19th century through the uh, 1930s, 40s anarchism. I have uh, a project I've delayed for quite some time, a big uh, collection of Russian material to do with the Russian uh, Civil War and the uh, Allied interventions in Russia uh, at the end of World War I. Those are just two of many examples. I have a lot of different interests. As every good bookseller should. So you want to catalog them, what, produce a catalog, sell them, or you just want Well, to or shape them up into uh, collections, which uh, can then go to an institution. 
I used to find institutions much more open to buying collections. I used to sell several collections every year. And what has happened in the last uh, uh, few years is that we're finding institutions are feeling overwhelmed. I mean, they're happy to look at individual items, perhaps. Because they've got so many of the other ones, right? Well, perhaps, or they look at the costs of cataloging yes. and uh, the cost of acquiring a collection, even a gifted collection. A lot of them only want to deal with the uh, gifts that they pick because of these running costs of cataloging. So do you want to live on one of the islands? No, uh, no. We, what what do you want to do? Live in Vancouver still? Yeah, or? We, uh, I bought a house uh, when I was 25 and I'm 70 now so we've been there uh, all this time. You happy to stay there? Happy to stay there. Great neighbors, uh, great That's neighborhood. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, I really thank you very much for uh, sharing uh, parts of your life and career and Well, it's been very me. good talking with you and uh, trying to answer some of your provocative questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. I'm speaking to Don Stewart, who is the proprietor of Clouds Books, based in Vancouver, British Columbia.